All right, open your Bible to Luke chapter 1. If you don't have one, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. If you don't own one, you can take that one home with you. I'm going to start in verse 26, and I'm going to read through 45-ish. And I'm crunching up my breath mint because my mom is aghast that I have a breath mint while I'm trying to speak publicly, and I don't want her to be agitated the whole service. Okay. All right. 26. <laughs> in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you've said. And then the angel left her. At this time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard of Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is he, she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. So uh, normally I come up with the ideas for sermons and I make Devin preach them if it's his turn. And this is, I think, might be the first series that was his idea, and I have to preach the sermons as he is designated. So here we go with that. It's hard to preach other men's minds, but we'll give it a try. Um, this series is going to be about Mary. And I know you're like, Nick, isn't this a Protestant church? Don't we hate Mary? You know? And, um, you know, Mary for a long time was sort of like one of the major female focal points of the Christian religion. And, and, and that was partly because most women for most of the history of the world got married relatively young, and they would have a child every two years until they either couldn't have any more, they hit menopause, or they died. I remember studying the Underground Railroad in northern New York, and what I would read through the things, it was very common. You have a man's name, a woman's name, child, 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 every two years, and then no more of that woman, another woman, child, child, child. And, and so what happened is either a, a woman would have between 7 and 12 children, or she would have someone then die, and then the guy would marry somebody else, often 20 years his junior, and have some more kids. And that was the way things were throughout the history of the world. And so women were naturally, directly, intensely connected to the administration of their fertility. It was—women it was, women couldn't deny in any meaningful sense that reality. And so now in the Western world where we prepare women for work and we distance ourselves as far as possible from our fertility, it's not as close a connection. In other cultures where family and fertility are more respected and loved and cared about than the present one we're in, you, you see representations of the Virgin, even if it's the Virgin Mary relative to something else, like the Virgin of Guadalupe, like my favorite fishing store, the Latino grocery shop that I like to go into when I go in there. You walk in the front door, and the first thing that you face is a six-foot version of the Virgin of Guadalupe. 
dressed in the traditional green instead of the, the blue of Catholicism, right? It's because, like, that, why wouldn't you have a six-foot-tall statue of the Virgin in your grocery store, right? It's partly because culturally, that, that like, connection with this, like, quintessential, like, key, incredibly special woman of the Christian faith, especially as it relates to Catholicism, is, like, a big deal, right? And it's partly because Mary is completely, singularly unique in the history of the cosmos, okay? Almost anything that has happened in Christian faith that God has done miraculously, other Christians have done, right? And so Jesus does a couple singularly unique things, like die for our sins. But outside of that, you know, multiple people have prayed for people who are sick, and they've gotten better. Multiple people have done all kinds of Christian things. Only one person has ever born the Son of God out of her womb, imparted humanity through early mothering, and carried that child into the future to fulfill their destiny. That could only happen once. It has only happened once. And it turns out, guys, sorry, it had to be a woman. Like, sometimes women are like, why does the Son of God a man? Like, it's so, like, sexist. It's like, we well, had to be one or the other. Like, it, right? And it was a man. Okay, sorry. And it turns out that the mother of God had to be one or the other. And it really isn't one or the other. It had to be one, and it was a woman. And she is, in that sense, like the apex of human experience and relationship to the divine that cannot be repeated and is singularly, fundamentally unique in all the history of the world. And it, so it's not weird that our Catholic and Orthodox friends, like, pray to her and stuff, right? Now, I'm not going to do that, because I don't think you're supposed to do that. I don't know if the saints can hear us. Hebrews 11 says that there's like a cloud of witnesses, so maybe they can—I don't know. But I don't, I don't see any place where the Bible teaches us we should pray to saints as mediators, right? In 1 Timothy it says, there's one mediator between God and man, or humanity, the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is, in his human stature, can identify with us, and in his divine stature knows everything about us, and can, in the one person, be the high priest for all of humanity. Okay, now, just because we don't pray to saints as Protestant Christians, it doesn't mean that an abundance of heroes isn't necessary and incredibly helpful for our spiritual nourishment. Do you understand? Like, the more heroes you have, the better. And so, therefore, it is an impoverishment of our own faith if we take the most singularly unique, greatest female hero in the Bible, and we diminish her in any way. Do you understand? Mary is one of our heroes, too. One of our greatest spiritual heroes. Do you understand? And she should be. Because everything about her that we read in Scripture, except for, like, the moment where she's not quite sure what Jesus is doing— and wants to, like, get him to stop doing what he's doing for a little bit because he just seems totally overrun with people. Like, he's going to go crazy. It's not because she thinks he's crazy. It's because he's working so hard, speaking to people so consistently, the, the huge crowds never seemingly to take a rest, that she, like, wants to pull him away. Like, any mother would do that, even the Son of God. Do you understand? Everything else we know about her is amazing. Now, she's become into a little bit more interest because— because of our present interest in intersectionality, specifically as it's re related to traditionally marginalized peoples, right? So Mary is kind of like the, like, queen of queens when it comes to traditionally marginalized peoples, right? She's, she is a woman. She's poor. She's a person of color. She lives in an obscure village, village with questionable education. She's unmarried. She has an unplanned pregnancy. She suffers from housing insecurity. Remember, she had to have her baby in a stable, right? And she got, got to—it was a refugee. Like, she had to flee to Egypt because the king was going to, like, kill all the children, right? And, like, her—it wasn't, like, for fun. Like, her tour of the pyramids of Giza was not like yours. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was, it was bad. And, and it, you could add some stuff to this as well, 
right? Like she literally lived under the tyrannical oppression of the Roman government. So she lived as a subjugated people of people who were using her people imperialistically and didn't care about her. Okay? Now, here's the thing. That's not what makes Mary great. That's not what makes Mary great. Is it cooler? Or is it like, maybe even some say it's more inspiring that in that state, she had this much faith? Yes. Yes. But the thing that's amazing about Mary is her faith. God didn't select her because she was intersectionally perfect. God selected her because the Son of God had to come to the world through a woman. And he chose Mary because of who she is. I mean, think about this for a second. In a way, in the first three years of life, women impart humanity to human beings. Like, it's, it's traditionally, it's fairly traditional that men aren't really all that interested with their kids until they're about, in their kids until they're about two years old. You know? Women make billions of interfacing um, investments in a child, be, like learning how to think, learning how to perceive, learning how to like, learning how to be anxious or be— like all these things are just like all these little goo-goos and gagas and holding and nursing and all of these inputs like turn a human into a human being. And that is almost exclusively done by women, even today, right? So if you're God the Father and the Son is coming into a human body and something about the the personality of the Son of God and the personality of the man Jesus Christ are going to be met in the sovereign will of God, how do you select a woman who will be that mother? Other than a woman who in her personhood has so conformed in faith to the character of God that the personality she would impart into a human being that she bore as a mother would be so confident with the personality of God himself so that the Son of God could be one person being raised by Mary and being the Son of God himself. I mean, is it weird that Jesus maybe had mannerisms that he got from Mary? Like, it's not weird that Catholics and Orthodox people have almost a mystical relationship to how they should understand who Mary is and was. Does that make sense? And so, we're not praying to saints, okay? Even Mary. But let's not underdo it. Like, she's, she's really interesting. I, it's probably, I wish there was more said about her, you know? But here's what we can take just to start with from it, Right? As Mary expresses faith, as she can be one of our heroes, as we can look to how she believes, right? You can say something like this. Faith is taking action on a promise in the midst of disruption and delay. Do you notice that what she's told about her son is all the good stuff and none of the bad stuff to start with? Right? He's going to be the son of God. I'm going to give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the people of Israel, and it will never end. Do you realize how, like, today, 2020, that hasn't happened yet? Like, Mary didn't see that promise. What she did see was her son murdered by the Roman government. She saw that. Betrayed by his own people into the hands of the Roman government. The most tragic possible death you could possibly imagine. Betrayed by his friends. Killed by his government. Betrayed by his own religious people. Like, you just, like, the government knew he was innocent and killed him and intentionally let somebody go that they knew were guilty. Like, you go through everything about the death of Jesus. It is the maximally tragic thing. And Mary, we know, was at the cross, saw it, and watched it all and did not lose her faith. I know, it's bad, right? Now, so there's three things that I think that we just really need to see that we can take from Mary and that we can apply to our faith in Jesus. I'm going to go through them relatively quickly here. One is, um, we can actually listen to what God or his messenger or what the word of God says in order to be curious and understand it. People don't listen very well. Do you notice that? You and I don't listen very well. We normally listen to complain. We listen until it's our turn to talk. 
You know what I mean? We listen to get the gist, but not really hear the heart. Does that make sense? And one thing that's really interesting about Mary is she like, she's clearly like emotionally triggered, right? This angel shows up. She's clearly terrified. It says that she was greatly troubled and wondered what sort of greeting this might be. As though like seeing an angel could be like, you're dead, you know? She's just like, clearly she's emotionally fraught. She's not in a perfect state of consciousness. She's talking to an angel that's not normal for her, right? And in the midst of that, the angel says a message to her. And it's really clear that she understands it. And she's listening curiously. She wants to understand. And there's like clearly an issue with what the angel says, which is this. She's supposed to become pregnant, and she's a little quizzical about how that's supposed to happen. Does that make sense? So she's like, okay, I've heard what you said, Gabriel. This is fantastic. Okay, but listen, I'm a virgin, so how am I supposed to get pregnant, right? Because you see, one of the reasons God chose her is because she's like, she is a virgin, and unintentional. It wasn't like unintentionally. It was intentional. It's one of the reasons God chose her, right? And so she's like, how am I supposed to do this? Because I don't have a whole husband. I don't think you want me to go just hook up with some random dude. Like, how does this happen? And what she gets is a very vague answer, right? It's a vague answer, right? The angel says, um, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the shadow, the, the Most High will overshadow you. That doesn't normally get women pregnant. Have you noticed that? Like, I mean, I'm really glad, because like if, if men's shadows could get women pregnant, I don't know how I would pay for my life. You know what I mean? It would be, it would be a problem, and women would not want to be around us. But like, it's just like this, like the Holy Spirit's going to sort of come on you, and the, God's going to overshadow you, and you're going to have a child, and they'll call the child the Son of God, because basically the implication is because there won't be an earthly father in the traditional sense, right? Now that's kind of vague. And I've, I've had all kinds of theological discussions with people, like, well, do you, okay, do you, so did God, like, fertilize one of Mary's eggs? Or was it, like, a holy zygote that's just in her womb? Or, like, and, like what, are we, what does this even mean? Right? And the answer is, it's probably good God didn't say. I mean, can you imagine how many more people would have killed each other fighting about this stuff? Right? Like, vague is good sometimes. You see, the issue with Mary is, is that answer was good enough for her. It's good enough for her. Because here's what she, she got. She knew what she was supposed to do. You see, Mary listened differently than we listen. She, she believed God already. He didn't have to prove himself. She was listening for like, okay, I'm confused by what you're saying. I want to know what to do. How does one become pregnant without a husband? And the answer is, you don't have to do anything, sweetie. Just, it's just going to happen. Okay, and it's fine. And so when you discover yourself pregnant, the Lord just wanted you to have some information about how this happened and what's going to happen. She's like, okay. Right? And that's what she said. She's like, okay, I'm the Lord's servant. Let's do it. That's just very different than how we tend to behave. I've said it several sermons ago. I said, listen, one of the most important things about us is how we pay attention. How we pay attention. What we pay attention to. In the book of Hebrews, it says, um, you guys, listen, we have to pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard so that we don't drift away. Like, what we pay attention to is specifically related to the perseverance of our faith and the development of our faith. He says, so that we don't drift away. For if the message spoken by angels is binding, and every violation and disobedience received is just punishment, how should we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Meaning, if when the angels spoke to Moses, and he had the whole Old Testament and the Torah and the, the first covenant, and if that was fundamentally authoritative, and yet God has purchased salvation with the death and resurrection of his own son, how much more authoritative is that? And how much more should we then pay attention to it? So we've got to pay attention. Peter says it similarly. He said, we ourselves heard the voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Meaning, in the Gospels, Peter was one of the, one of the apostles that was up on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus looked 
super, like, like brightened up like a divine figure. And God said, this is my son. Listen to it, right? And Peter says, I heard that. The word of God. I heard it. And I, I, this is the way I had to pay attention to it. But then he says, and we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it as the light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. Meaning, this, the story or the word, the message of Jesus the Christ crucified and risen to forgive our sins, to unite us with God, to reconcile us to himself, to teach us how to love and how to be the human beings we were created to be. That word, that message we have as the word of the prophets, the actions of God in history, in the man Jesus Christ, more sure than any prophet or anything I heard on a mountain. It is the voice of God in you. Listen, we gotta pay attention. You gotta pay attention to it. You can't listen so that you can talk. You can't listen so you can fall fine. You don't listen so that you can dismiss it. You don't listen until it's your turn to talk. You gotta listen like you're paying attention, like you're receiving it, like you're wondering what to do with it. You're listening for personal action and belief. And if you ask a question, it's a question that comes out of meaningful curiosity, not just argumentativeness. And listen, you guys. This is a difficult calling Mary is receiving. And yet she, she listens to understand. And she asks out of curiosity because she cares about what she's going to do. And that may not sound like a big deal to you, but can you imagine if we lived like that? Like, this woman actually did it. Right? Talk all you want, all of our lip service about how we behave, what we think about ourselves, blah, blah, blah. This woman did it. And that's what matters. Now, the second thing is, that we can take from Mary about how she responds to God and His Word is that we can consent to what isn't even our choice out of trust in God. You can consent to what isn't your choice out of trust in God. So, one of the interesting things about how, how um, Gabriel says this to Mary is he doesn't say, Mary, the Lord, the God of Israel, has a list of 17 virgins in the land of Judea and Israel that all are like pretty godly young ladies. You're number one. If you would like, you could bear the Son of God. That's not what he says. He goes, Mary, this is going to happen. You're going to be, become pregnant. You're going to have a child. He's going to be the Son of the Most High. This is going to happen. There's not, it's not a choice. Now, now you, you can just—you can speculate that God knows Mary because he knows everything. He knows that she will consent to this beforehand. And so he says it declaratively without requesting her consent, Right? Or maybe not. Or maybe some mixture. The, the reality thing, the thing is, is that Mary is not asked. And she offers her consent anyway. Right? Gabriel says, this is what's going to happen. She's like, okay, can you clear this up for me? How do I become pregnant? Because I need to know what to do. He goes, this is what's going to happen. She goes, okay. I consent. Yes, I am the Lord's servant. Let your word come true with me. Right? She knows who she is. She's the Lord's servant. If this is God's will, she's in. That's all she has to know. Is this the Lord's will? And what is my next actionable step? My next actionable step is nothing. <laughs> and so my only actionable step, actionable step at this moment is to consent. Does that make sense? And so she does. She says, I'm the Lord's servant. Let it, me to be, let it be done to me as you say. Right? Um, there is, are a, a large number of things in our lives that are the providence of God, meaning he, he either does them or allows them to happen because in some sense they serve his greater work and some things have to happen so that other things can happen in ways we don't understand. 
So when I say everything is under God's sovereign will, that doesn't mean that everything that we don't like about our lives is God's particular intentional inflicted will. What it means is, is that God has a big picture he's working towards. Everything that happens inside of it is his will. That is, he allows it to happen for the larger purposes that he's pursuing. And he works all of those things that we don't like towards that end, if and only if sometimes, if Romans 8 is clear on this, if they're combined with faith, right? Towards our good. So every little thing serves our good when combined by faith in God's meticulous providence. But everything is done in God's larger providence. That's all I can say about the doctrine of providence right now without getting confusing and long-winded, okay? So the point is, is that in our lives, there are all kinds of particulars that we did not choose. And yet, there they are. Does that make sense? And a lot of our anger and resentment and anxiety and things that disrupt us from living in the present and doing the good and enjoying our lives comes from us being upset about those things, right? Um, we talk a lot about anxiety in the present, but in the medieval church among scholastics, it was, it was called the sin or the condition of rumination. Are you familiar with ruminants? Animals that chew their cud. They've got multiple stomachs. And so they're out like out in the grassland and they can be attacked by an animal. So they don't want to be there forever. So they graze kind of as, not as fast as they can, but they're like looking around for the graze, graze, graze. And right? And then they go to their bedding area where they like are all defensively positioned and they're not easily attacked. And now they sit and chew. So they regurgitate, and then they chew, and they chew, and they chew, and they chew a second time. It comes from the Latin word to chew, keep chewing, right? There are things in our life that we don't like that happen to us, the way people treated us, the situations we find ourselves in, and they, they're, they're right for us to keep psychologically regurgitating and chewing on again. Now, when we do that negatively, and we share it with others, that's called the sin of gossip. Right? But when we just do it in our own heads to drive ourselves crazy, it is either the sin or the sickness, depending on how you want to look at it, of rumination. Rechewing, I'm rechewing, I'm rechewing. And the, and the ancient scholastic saints and Christians in the care of souls would identify that, that condition and try to help people cut, cut off that circle. And one of the ways we cut off the circle of rumination, that is the unhelpful, unproductive, and ungodly rehearsal of things, is by consent. You can't change it. You weren't asked. It is a reality in your life. And you rebel against the pain that it causes by deciding that in God's will, you consent to it. It doesn't have you. It doesn't control you. You are a victim. You consent. I will find out what the will of God is. I will walk in this thing, and I will walk it out in God's will, and I will demonstrate the beauty, the worth, the glory of God, and I will show how I can be the person I was meant to be in the midst of these things that I can't control, and I will embrace the reality of my life in such a way as to not destroy myself in rumination, but to consent and see and act. Right? And so you get cancer. Young. And you can ruminate on that. Why cut out? It shouldn't be me. It should be the other person. I had a good diet. And why is it the right? No. No, no. You express your feelings so you're not like pretending you don't feel terrible about it. And then you consent. You say, I consent. Let's see what happens. I'm going to walk through this and we're going to find out what happens. What happens when somebody completely committed to the will of God walks through something they don't want and they seek to glorify God and be an authentically faithful believer and they walk through this? Your spouse just divorces you for reasons that you wish you could prevent but you couldn't for whatever reason. Maybe it's a terrible reason. Right? People in the church are gonna unhelpfully judge you. They're not trying, but they're gonna—like, it's gonna be difficult. 
you can't fix it, right? I consent. Let's find out what happens when somebody who wanted to live the perfect little life gets dumped by somebody who decides to abandon them. And like, I'm going to take the situation that I'm in. I'm going to be faithful to God. I'm going to accept the recrimination I may not even deserve. And I'm going to walk through this. I'm going to find out. I'm going to do the next actual thing. I'm going to believe. Right? I mean, I think Mary felt like people thought she was virtuous. I mean, years later, in a different part of Judea, Jesus is talking and they refer to him as the son of iniquity or fornication. So everybody thought Mary had slept around. I mean, think about it. What do you think is going to happen? She knows that. She knows people are going to unrighteously judge her in a way that's perfectly reasonable in their mind. And they're going to think that she's—I mean, she's—that's not the point. She knew that was going to happen. She wasn't dumb. She's like, I consent. Yes. Because of the promise, because of the opportunity, because this is a work of the favor of God, not the judgment of God, I accept all the disruption, all the pain, all the difficulty, and the bigger picture, and I consent. I agree. I'm God's servant. Let it be done to me the way you said. Yes. She wasn't even asked. She initiated the consent. I consent. She grabbed the driver's wheel of this, even though she was submitting to God, but you can submit to God and step into your life at the same time. You don't have to be like, sort of like, strangely psychologically passive and also believe in the will of God. You can like, be active in seeking to do the will of God and be completely submissive to the will of God at the same time. It's called stewardship or bravery or love. <clears throat> and our lives are very much like this. And you and I have to figure out how in whatever given situation God has put us in and called us in, we can say, I consent. I am the Lord's servant. I consent to bear this out wherever it goes to find who I will be in walking through it, to find out who you are in walking through it, and to love whoever I encounter on this path that I would not have chosen. Because I believe that your will can redeem and move this in the right direction. And I can say. And it will save you from making yourself crazy. And it will also make your difficult life you wouldn't have chosen, would have chosen an adventure rather than an, an opportunity. And that life that you haven't chosen will go a lot better because you're not fighting it and fighting God. Okay, I'll tap that right now. Okay, three. The third thing you, we can see in Mary in the way she like exerts faith towards the promise in the midst of difficulty and problems is she uses the God-given circumstances to pursue God's encouragement, right? So Mary is not just magically faithful. It's not like Mary just— we, we meet Mary, and she's perfect, and she will be forever perfect. She's a human person. But here's what, here's what Mary does, right? She knows she doesn't have to find a man to get pregnant. So what's the next thing she's going to do? How does she do faith? In what way is she going to exert herself? And what happens is, is she hears something, and what Gabriel says to encourage her. He says, listen, your aunt, who has been infertile her whole life, who's an older woman now, it seemed, like, it seemed like your whole life, when you were like a little girl, you heard people whispering about Elizabeth's infertility. She's pregnant. She's been pregnant for six months. She's been hiding it. But she is. She's pregnant. And the first thing, and, and, then, and then Gabriel says, listen, every, nothing's impossible with God. Nothing's possible with God. And so the first thing she does is she goes to personally experience the thing God is doing, even if she has to travel. So she like packs it and says she immediately goes 
to Zachariah's house to see Elizabeth. Because it's one thing to say, oh, I believe, yeah, Elizabeth is with child. No, no. Mary wanted to put her hands on Elizabeth's stomach and feel the kicks. She wanted to hear Elizabeth tell her what happened and, and receive and re-express back and forth her joy between women. She wanted to like smell the estrogen-filled pheromones and like see her aunt who she—they told stories about and, and the, the woman who she'd seen cry at family gatherings because her children weren't running around with everybody else and she wanted to, 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 to experience their faith growing. And what happened was when she did that basic act, a minor miracle that would change her life happened. That is when she came into Elizabeth's house and she said, hey, Elizabeth, it's Mary, I'm here. The Holy Spirit in a moment filled Elizabeth and with it, her womb and her child, and her child like jumped for joy and the Holy Spirit interpreted it and said, and Elizabeth said, he said, she said, you'll never believe this. The moment your words hit my ears, my child jumped for joy. And then she prophetically interpreted why that Mary was carrying the Messiah. And she said, my my child jumped knowing who you were and who you carried. How blessed I am that the mother of my Lord came to me. Right? So that maybe decades later when the Dr. Mark talks with people who experienced the early events of Jesus, he sat with Mary and said, Mary, what was it like? She said, I remember the time after I'd heard from Gabriel and I was confused about it and I didn't know what Joseph was going to do. And like, I was really scared, but I also believed that maybe great things were going to happen. I remembered what Gabriel had said. And so like, I went to see Elizabeth. And I thought, oh, if I can see her pregnant, it'll, give, it'll help me. It'll encourage me, right? And she's going through it, and she's older than me. She'll have wisdom for me. And I got there, and God did this, like, weird miracle where, like, John, like, leapt in her stomach. And she told me, and, like, like 30 years later, Mary's sitting in some place with this doctor, and he's writing down the story because she never forgot it. And when she was standing there watching her son be murdered by her government in these wicked Roman overlords, when she saw her own ethnic people give him over to that, when she watched them turn loose this murdering this like murdering riotous man who had like tried to destroy because knowing he was guilty, knowing Jesus was innocent, as she stood and watched her son be killed, not knowing about the resurrection yet, she stood there and she looked upon him. She was at the foot of the cross with John and she could bear it. Of all the people in the world, of all of them, who would you have thought most couldn't bear to watch Jesus be murdered in that way? Just couldn't take it, couldn't handle it. It was just too much for them. It would have been Mary. How many people do you see walk away from the responsibility because they say, I can't handle this? And of all the people that ran and hid, yeah, she wasn't as much under the eye of the government being a woman, but she was, she was his mother. And he could look at because she, she carried these experiences with her because she had gone to find them. Because in the small teachings of God, she had pursued actions that would apply. And in those things where she didn't know what would happen, God gave additional things that strengthened her faith. So over time, her faith grew and grew and grew. So in the disruptions and the difficulties and the pain and all that stuff, when it happened, she could bear it. She was ready. She believed. She could reconsent again to bury her son. Right? And like, there are a lot of ways to do this, friends. Like, I, sometimes I feel like people get really frustrated in their faith, and they're like praying, God, please make my faith real, and please speak to me. And they like, 
They're not doing anything that he said. There's no risks being taken. They're not stepping out into anything. But in, like all the places where God does stuff, people are like doing something usually. I mean, every once in a while, God goes and finds somebody when nobody's doing anything, and, he, and God won't consent to nothing happening ever in a generation. Like he'll go find somebody like Gideon, right? In a very ungodly time. And he'll, he'll like poke at somebody. But for the most part, when stuff happens, it's because people are doing something risky. And in that experience, they find the thing happening, and they go, oh, so for example, um, we have to be, one of the things that is like normal, that people expect as a failure of spirituality and faith, is that, that the dividing walls of hostility between different kinds of people just aren't going to get broken down. They're going to have their own churches, they're not going to like each other, and that's just what it is. When a bunch of people from High Point went to End Time Ministries, now, normally when they pack these 700 packages, there's two or three women that spend a couple of days breaking their backs to do the work. But they do it because they care about the people they're going to give the stuff to. And so they do it, right? And we dumped like 20 volunteers on them. And so it got done in 45 minutes, right? And then we helped pass it out, and we just got to do it together, right? And we used their gifts of like being connected to the poor in the area, having a system by which they did it, having a way to get all the food and get it together, and then manpower that we were able to offer to get everything packed and done so it wasn't backbreaking for the few volunteers that they had. Because it turns out most of their folks have to work during the day, and they don't—they just didn't have the volunteers to come together and get it done, right, in the middle of the day. And so it happened. And you know what? I got texts from like three different members of their church who were in leadership who were like, Pastor Nick, this is what happens going to be like. Like, I know that there's distrust and stuff like that, but like, this is what happens going to be like. Well, pe people, like, why, why do they feel like that? Because they saw it. Like, they agreed to host us. We agreed to go there. We believe that God cares about the poor. We believe that a time like Thanksgiving or Christmas is an important time to do what we can for the poor. And so we, a few of our people like, actually did it. And they actually invited us and hosted us. And in the interplay of that and actually giving the stuff to the poor, doing what God told us to do, they experienced something and it encouraged them. I, I hear this from people who go on mission trips too. They're like, I didn't really want to go to some place and raise money and like take time off from work. But then most of the people that I know who do it, they're like, well, it was, it was moderately life-changing. Like, it really, like, just expanded my view of the world and who there is out there to love and what the assumptions I bring to my life every day that are just totally circumstantial to my life rather than truly human and what God is really doing way beyond my experiences and so on. And you could go through all kinds of different experiences where if you listen to God and what He wants to do, and you're really asking questions out of curiosity so that you can act, and then you consent to the dynamics of the situation that you're in that you have no control over. You say, I consent. Now what's next? And then you look for what God has said that like is something that he's doing, and you move towards it, and you just see what you experience whilst doing it. And then you find like it's stuff you never expected. One of the big examples of this, you guys, is, is friendships, is what I find. Is people that we like would have never even met. We just end up circumstantially meeting, and they really enrich our lives, right? Like, uh, Menorah James got home from India on Thanksgiving. Menorah and I have been friends since 2003. I went to like this Alpha Course meeting at a house in Lake Forest, Illinois, when I was in seminary. And I met this guy named Saji Lukos, and he was trying to get everybody to go to India. And so he like put the full court press on me and go to India on a mission trip. And I, I thought of myself as really intelligent. He's like, you could teach at a seminary. It'll be great. I was like, okay, fine. So I like went, and when I was there, Minohar was the headmaster of the school, and so I met him, right? We've been friends since 2003, right? That's almost 20 years. Almost 20 years, right? And I can never repay him for his friendship and the ministry I've been connected with through him. I would have never met him 
if I didn't go on a trip. There's other people that I didn't have to go. I didn't have to go to another country to meet. I just, because I couldn't go this way, I got bumped in this way. And because I got bumped in this way, I ended up in this thing. And then I thought the will of God was to do this thing. And then I met this person here. And then they became a really enriching friendship in my life that I could have met, someone I would have never found. Right? Sometimes it's circumstantial. Sometimes it's the way God gets us jobs or promotions. Sometimes it's we actually find our vocation, the work we really want to do because we bounce around from things. You, it, you never really know how it's going to happen. The question is, do you look to God to listen and ask questions of curiosity, not to fault find, but to believe and act? Do you say in the difficult circumstances that you're actually in, I consent? Let's see what happens. And then do you move towards the lead? Let's think about it this way. You know how like when you watch a— my, my daughter, one of my daughters is watching through all 17 seasons of Bones right now. Which is like a detective show about dead people, okay? And what they're always doing is they're trying to come up with a lead. Like something that hasn't materialized. They don't know where it's going to go. But it's the next thing to investigate. In some ways, that, like the whole spiritual life is lived that way, right? Like you know these like basic commands of God. You know kind of what you're supposed to do. The question is, what particular thing should I do right now? And the answer is, well, what are your leads? Look at the providences around you. The sorts of things God wants you to do. What's right there? How do you— What's the next lead? What is it? Who knows? Only you know. And it's different for every single person in this room. Nobody in this room, if we came up with a list of, like, your spiritual leads right now, not one sheet of paper would be the same. Or the phone screen. That's intentional. That's the sense in which your relationship with God really is, in some sense, different than everybody else's. It's not in your relationship with Christ. It's not—your relationship is just the same with God as everybody else's in a lot of ways. But there are a couple ways in which it is truly, singularly unique. If you listen, if you consent, and if you look, you have a list of leads that's different from everybody else's. What are you going to do? That's a question. And if we look to Mary, I, I just really believe that, man, she did these things in spades. She was, man, she just knew who she was. Who knows how old she was? People speculate that she's a teenager. Oh, she's probably 13 years old. We have no idea how old Mary was. I, one, one of the things that really bothers me about people talking about Mary is when they always assume she was really pretty. I think that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Every picture of Mary, she's like so pretty. She might have been—look, Mary could have very easily been very homely and 27 years old because nobody wanted to marry her before Joseph. And maybe Joseph wasn't hot either and didn't have a prosperous business. It's, it's, it's all our stupid worldly prejudices that tell us all these things that we can't possibly know, right? Maybe Mary was a very unattractive young woman who was 20. Who cares? The reality is, is that like in the midst of all of that and all the other intersexual, intersectional realities, she knew exactly who she was. I am the Lord's servant. Blessed is the one who believes that what God says will be accomplished. And who's willing to face everything that's in front of you. Listening, consenting, acting. In that sense, we can all pursue the faith Mary had. In doing so, we will pursue the same Christ that she bore. And it may feel like labor at times. But it is the most human and wholesome thing that can be done in this life. And it is the place where we will find the activity of God, the power of the Spirit, and things that will encourage us to persevere in our faith. For however long we have to wait, for however long until the promise is fulfilled that Mary's son will be called the Son of God, he will receive the throne of his father, David. 
and he will rule over the children of Abraham forever. Lord Jesus, um, we pray that in this time of Advent where we think about the last waiting and we wait until the return of your Christ, that you'd help us to be prepared to pursue the promise in the midst of difficulty and dislocation. We pray that um, Mary to us would be a very special saint in the heroic sense, and that we would see her dignity and her action and her faith as prescriptive for us, we can, so we can walk like her. And we pray that she, along with all the other heroic believers, saints and martyrs, before all of us who are your holy ones, are your saints, your believers, that we will be caught up into following you, Jesus the Christ, with every passion, running after you with perseverance, the mark, the race marked out for us. Help us to follow you, to see you, Jesus, as our mediator. But help us to run with a kind of pride like our parents are in the stands watching us as we run after you in front of this great cloud of witnesses of whom Mary is one of our mothers. We pray in Jesus.